Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Genesis Science Fiction Radio Show, a service of the BlackScienceFictionSociety.com website. I'm your host, William Hayashi, and this is the uh, October 4, 2019 edition. And I, I tell you, I never thought I'd be doing this for this long. I mean, this this many years. But but it's been a lot of fun. I met a lot of interesting people tonight. We have another one of those interesting people. We'll be talking to, um, oh my God, uh, oh I'm sorry, Roosevelt Pitt. He is a junior, but I'm I, you know I'm probably not going to call him junior. Um, probably a a multifaceted entrepreneur. Um, he's a director, writer, publisher, author. He's created his own comic. Um, there's a number of things. We're going to find out more about him in the course of the evening. So, Roosevelt, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Looking forward to sharing uh, all things Purge and um, also looking forward to just having a wonderful conversation about what I do and why I do it for so long. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So tell everybody where you're coming to us from. Uh, I'm actually residing in North Carolina, uh, Mount Airy, North Carolina, to be exact. Um, for those who may not be familiar with Mount Airy, uh, just think of Andy Griffith, the Andy Griffith Show. Uh, that's where the show is based off of, Mount Airy, North Carolina. Wow. And a, a little bit of trivia for people who don't know, the Andy Griffith Show was the very first spinoff show in the history of television. And it was spun off of the Joey Bishop show. Joey Bishop was, no, it wasn't Joey Bishop. It was Danny Thomas. Was it Danny Thomas? Danny Thomas. Yeah, Danny Thomas. He had a show, and he was based in New York. And in the course of his show, he was um, driving down to Florida. I think he had a, a, an entertainment gig in Florida, and he was speeding through North Carolina and got pulled over by this sheriff who was played by Andy Griffith. And I guess the ratings for those shows with him interacting with Andy and trying to get out of, you know, a ticket or whatever, 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 were rated so high, they decided to give Andy Griffith his own show, Andy of Mayberry. And um, that's, that's how, that was the very first spinoff TV show in the history of television. And what's interesting um, about the Andy Griffith show that um, I found to be quite phenomenal is that people are still um, passing through here for tours. Um, I live about stone's throw away from Wally's gas station. <laughs> and, really? Uh, many times, yes. And many times I can hear the Andy Griffith uh, cop car whistling by with the sirens, taking many people through the tour, touring through Mount Airy um, and showing some of the Andy Griffith memorabilia, um, the Andy Griffith Playhouse. Uh, so it happens often throughout the week. And it's quite, it's quite interesting to see how long uh, that show has lasted in the minds of people and how they passed it along generation and generations. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people look at it kind of um, in a nostalgic vein, like, oh, those were simpler times, and, you know, uh, life wasn't going so fast, and these are, these are genuine people, blah, 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 you know. Um, and, 
and which is kind of short-sighted or at least small-minded because, let's be honest, um, there's a lot about that period of time that, that wasn't so good for a whole lot of people. But, you know, entertainment being what it, what it is and you being able to actually see the result of the popularity of the show and everything, I think that is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Um, now, let me ask you this. Uh, like sure. most people, have you done any of the tour kind of stuff yourself? Because like people ask me, oh, you live in Chicago. Have you done this, 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 and this? You know, all these things that are specific to Chicago. And, you know, some of them I have, but a whole lot of them I have not. Um, well, when I first moved into the area back in 1999, um, like most people, I enjoyed Andy Griffiths growing up. Um, and I went to a few of the um, plays uh, that kind of chronicle the Andy Griffith show, how it began. Uh, there are a few museums here that I visited on occasion. But, you know, once you do it once, that's pretty much it. And I've been here for almost 20 years, and I'm sort of like pretty much, you know, I've had my feel, <laughs> to say the least. Okay. Uh, you know, um, and at this point, if I really want to see Andy, I'll just look on MeTV, you know, and get my feel. Uh, I don't need to immerse myself all, in all the memorabilia. Uh, because as you said, as you stated so uh, eloquently, that there's a lot that went on during that time that was not so great. I mean, and, and that's the truth of the matter. So when people say, well, I wish we were back you know, reminiscing on saying, I wish we were, things were back the way they were during the Andy Griffith days. And my response to that is, well, that sounds great on paper, but in reality, it was a horrific time for black people who were getting lynched and hung or shot. Um, yep. And that's the reality of it. Um, so it wasn't all great. But again, entertainment is what entertainment does. It allows us to navigate away from reality, and we have to yeah. understand that that's what it was created for. Unfortunately, that's still what it does to a degree, um, but for the uh, sake of answering your question, uh, not as often as I did when I first moved here uh, 20 years ago. Yeah, I, I, can, I can see that. Um, we, we have kind of a milestone event today, which is a sad one. Um, Diane Carroll passed away, who was yeah. one of the first the first um, black television stars. You know, she was one of the, you know, you know they had a, a TV show, Julia, and uh, she was the star of the show. And that was, I think at that time, there was Julia and there was the, uh, the, the Bill Cosby show, you know, where he was Chet Kincaid, the gym teacher. Sure. Right. So... Um, sad to see her go. I have uh, I have a, a very a cherished album of hers which I have not been able to find on CD that I keep. And uh, she was a great singer. She has a, she was a great talent. Um, and it's you know it's sad. And the saddest part, I know this sounds selfish, but the saddest part is when stuff like this happens when people pass away. It it tends to remind me how old I am because in my head. Um, you know, my head thinks I'm like 35, and right. uh, I'm 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 way past 35. You know, as a matter of fact, 
oh, I got a birthday coming up in a week or so. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm you know, I, I, I'm much, much closer to retiring than anything else. Um, oh, you mentioned that you've been there for 20 years. Where did you grow up? Um, I actually grew up in Wilson, North Carolina, uh, which is on the east oh, part Wilson. of the state. Oh, Wilson, okay. Yeah. Um, Rocky All right. Bill, that's familiar. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now let's let's get to your to the to the stuff people actually tuned in to hear. Not that you know learning about you and and me reminiscing isn't you know just the wonderful thing that it is. But but when you when you look at all of your accomplishments, I'm wondering what was the earliest thing that kind of tripped your trigger? As a comic creator. I've talked to a lot of comic creators, a lot of people who have who have their own comic lines and things like that, and most of them have told me that when they started out drawing as a kid, they just kept drawing and never looked back. Um, was okay. that one of your earliest, um, I guess, interests, I guess we could call um, it, or, or what would you say? You tell me. Well, I wouldn't. Uh, I was definitely not in that particular arena. Um, the catalyst for me was television. Now, I don't mind telling okay. my age. I don't mind sharing my age. I'm I'm 53. I'll be 54 this coming December. So okay. I go back remembering George Reeves' Superman, black and white. Right. Okay? Absolutely. Uh, I remember the Hanna-Barbera. Um, Space Ghosts, Herculoids, uh, early early 60s, um, or late 60s, I should say. Um, so for me, that was a catalyst because when I look back on those days, of course, as a black man, I always look to see if I can find anyone who looked like me. And sure. without, a shadow, without a shadow of a doubt, Superman was my favorite superhero and pretty much still is. But there's nothing more revealing or presents a epiphany in your mind as a young child, at least a black young boy, running around with a towel wrapped around his neck, pretending he's Superman, jumping and leaping over beds, pretending he can fly. That was me. So it happened unexpectedly when Superman stood on top of the planet with his arms at his side, his cape flowing in the wind, and he's looking majestic. Um, he looked as if, you know, he can conquer any evil. And when I took that pose in front of the mirror, I realized, wow, I'm black. I can never be Superman. He's white. Yeah. I can never yeah. be able to obtain that greatness simply because we don't look alike. He didn't resemble me. So how would I ever be able to accomplish that level of, hero, of, of heroism? So that was the catalyst for me to start reading comic books, looking at Marvel and DC, finding anyone yeah. in comics that looked like me. And I really didn't see any. So that helped me to, I guess, subconsciously, want to fill that void. So I began to write. So just for clarity, I don't draw anything. If I drew it, believe me, no one would buy it. So um, I began to write. I began to use the action figures that my father would buy me, the old Mego ones, 12-inch, 8-inch Mego dolls. <laughs> sure. And create. 
and create my own adventures in my room behind closed doors. Uh, I remember <laughs> fondly building superhero headquarters out of books because we couldn't really afford to buy huge play sets. So I would get books, encyclopedias back then, before the Internet and Google, for those who don't know, we didn't use encyclopedias to research. <laughs> yeah. Okay? Oh, yeah. So I would get those, fold in a certain way, and make like buildings, put my heroes in them, and create my stories and adventures in my room within my imagination. And then eventually as I got older, I started writing those adventures down. And that took me throughout my youth into my young adulthood wanting to always create characters that look like me based on the greatness that I see in black people, heroes that I grew up with, like Malcolm X, MLK, James Baldwin, and using their type of, um, of heroism and dedication to elevating black people and putting that into my stories and into the, the essence of what I see was, was lacking when it comes to black heroes in comics. Man, um, it's, and, and about what age were you when you started doing that? Because you, you, don't, you don't sound like you were real old when you did that. No, I started really creating my own adventures, I would say around eight or nine. Yeah. Yeah, and see, that's, and, that's and I when was, I think the, the mind is pretty fertile at that, at that age. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying that, you know, then, of course, as I grew older and was able to actually formulate my thoughts into scripts or at least, um, I guess, uh, formulate stories based on what I've already saw in comics using those as templates. I mean, for instance, one reason I love Marvel Comics is that they challenged me to look up words. I didn't know what Excelsior meant or nuclear fission or fusion. I had to look it up, right. and that's what I was. Yeah. That's what I wanted to really have with my comics is not to dumb it down for children, but to challenge them to look beyond themselves to learn, so that they can increase their knowledge, but also enjoy the fantasy of what comic books represent. That's pretty enlightened for that age, you know. When you when you think about it, that's uh, that's that's very remarkable for that age. Um, so, so you definitely kind of went along. Now, oh, that's that's something I want to ask you. You know, you started talking about the writing part. Um, what about the artistic half of that? You know, were you good at drawing, or or did somebody else help you with that? Um, you know, or or were you pretty much self-sufficient? Uh, no, I wasn't self-sufficient. I wouldn't say that. Um, I was a good tracer. Um, okay. Pulling out a comic book page, finding a pose, tracing it, and then kind of drawing my own look to it. But eventually, as I got older, i.e., once I got to college and I was connected to more people, meeting real artists, I was able to partner with people um, that helped me bring my vision to the page in a cohesive way so that people can understand uh, that this is a character that has depth, not only with the written word, but what the artist can bring uh, to the comic book page visually. Um, so I've worked with a, a lot of artists throughout the years, uh, but one of the first artists that I really worked with on a 
ongoing, uh, and I dare say more intimate level, meaning we were able to really work together um, on a spiritual level where he can understand what I'm saying, understand what I'm trying to, trying to create, even with my meager tracings, and really take that and make it blossom to something fantastic. Uh, and, uh, and that would be um, uh, Brother Mashindo Kumba. Um, he's one of the talents that I believe goes unsung, uh, but I clearly would say, without a shadow of a doubt, he's one of the best on the planet um, as far as African artistic sensibility and mm-hmm. using that spiritual aspect of what black people in Africa truly mean in our essence and really making that blossom within his art. I mean, you can feel it. It's kind of it's hard to explain sometimes, but it really permeates in everything that he does, um, right down to how the person looks, the skin tone, um, the way he's able to make a character look as if they're moving without them moving. Uh, he's a master. And uh, having the opportunity to work with him for over 20-plus years has been a blessing. And he has taken a lot of my characters and uh, bring them to life in ways that most artists cannot do. Um, so, uh-huh. so I definitely will say, for, for a shadow of a doubt, uh, I'm definitely not self-sufficient. I do bring what I bring to the table. I, I do feel that I'm able to bring good writing, good concepts, good ideas. But it takes a special relationship with the artist to be able to take those ideas and um, blow them up to a point where people are excited about seeing the next issue, the next book, or the next character. Now, what kind of feedback have you gotten on, on, on the completed works that you have? Well, um, as you may know, um, Purge, which is my flagship character, debuted back in 1993 um, under the Aeneid banner. And um, back then, there weren't really many black comic books that featured a black lead. So that sure. in itself was something that people were excited about, and the artwork was one of the best um, at that time by an independent um, black comic book publishing entity. Um, so I've got to receive great feedback. Now, fast forward to uh, two years ago when Purge reemerged uh, with a new look, um, a new direction, as we call it, um, and he was provided a new look uh, by Brother uh, Keaton Jones, and I was able to formulate a wonderful artistic um, writing partnership with uh, the Zong Brothers from India, and that book got great reviews. Um, the artwork was phenomenal, uh, but again, a lot of the look and the character development was based off of Machindo's previous works years before. So um, there hasn't been a moment that I have received, I guess, bad marks as far as art is concerned or writing when it comes to Purge uh, because I do my best to seek out the best artists that I can because it is about competition as well. Uh, I want to be able to have my book next to a Marvel book and people look at both as being equal, even though... I don't have the marketing dollars to push it as hard or as long as Marvel or DC. But when you look at the book, the quality is just as good. And that's always been an important um, factor. 
uh, for me as well as um, being a writer and as a publisher. That's pretty cool. Now, the the you know the universal challenge, of course, is to get the kind of recognition and notice that that you would like to achieve, like you said, like a Marvel or a DC, um, without having uh, usually, especially people starting out, people who are entrepreneurs and doing their own work and don't have a big publishing house behind them. Um, the you know the challenge is always how do you get your your work noticed above the background noise because the the bar to publish is so low. There are so many independent houses out there that allow you to self-publish, some good, some bad, whatever. But it you know there there are so many people out there who are putting out content. Um, when when you think about, I mean at, at this point you probably have a pretty good leg up getting your work out there merely because you know you're standing the test of time. But early on, yes, you had a, a black superhero, but did you face any other challenges that made it a little more difficult for you to get your work out there? Um, sure. I think any indie publisher will tell you that the challenges that we have as far as longevity of our brand or, as you put it, um, bringing awareness to a brand, it always centers around money. Money is always a major factor. Um, right. Because when you're working with a low um, budget, or you don't really have yeah, mar a, a low marketing. marketing budget, yeah. Exactly. Well, then your reach is not going to be as it should be or as you would like it to be. Now, if we go backwards in time in the 90s, for those who don't remember, of course, there was no Kickstarters or Indiegogos or not much Internet going on during that time, even though we had AOL. Um, the majority of the way to get your brand out is to hire a PR firm. Um, or to try to uh, attract as many newspaper articles as you can, you see. Um, that's what's the, pretty much the only way that you can really get the word out. Uh, or you can follow the path that MC Hammer did back in the day, put your comic books in your truck <laughs> and drive around to comic book shop to comic book shop, which I did. You know, um, or I actually went to every news station that I could and said, hey, this is who I am. I'm local, and I'm producing this comic book. I've sold a 1,000 copies. Would you do an interview about me, or would you, do a, would you cover me as a story? And I was able sure. to utilize that to get the word out. Now it's a little bit easier. Um, but again, as you said, so many people are producing content. Um, Facebook changes its algorithms seems to be on, on a weekly basis. So you're really not sure how much reach you're getting. Um, but if you know how to navigate social media, and believe me, I'm still learning, uh, because I'm old school. I believe in talking to people face-to-face, -face, shaking hands, eye-to-eye -eye contact, reading body language. Well, that's sort of almost passe now. Everyone is texting. Everyone is going to Twitter. So you have to learn that world in order to continue to market yourself in the best way. Um, the good news is if you really are able to get the social media thing um, 
down and master it. You can almost market yourself without paying a lot. But still, you know, there's a lot to learn. And I'm still learning in that regard. Um, but that's well, what the, I've done there, so far. Yeah, and there's, there's, there's a certain amount of time that's involved. Um, I have discussed what I call the 80-20 rule with entrepreneurs like yourself where it seems when I ask people what's the balance of you know, the time that they spend doing things professionally and the time that they spend doing things creatively, and you know, it, it works out to be about 80% in terms of the business of doing business and about uh, 20% of, of your time that remains is for doing the creative part of what you do. For you, it would be creating the comic or, or some of the other endeavors that you do. So, it, you know, it is rather tough, and, and sometimes it can be a shock to people how hard it is because even doing social media, if you're going to use social media for your principal advertising platform, you know, you have to keep track of people talking all the time. You have to keep track of what they're talking about. You have to take a look at, uh, you know, the myriad of articles that, that float past you. And I'm going to just say it. Somebody could get mad at me, but they can kiss my butt. Um, I would say that a good 85% of the crap on social media is just that. It's crap. It's a waste of my time. You know, there are, there are some days when I, I go to Facebook and I go, I can't believe how stupid all of these people are. And I know that that's not very charitable. And it's probably right. not going to be a popular thing for people to say, well, damn, what's wrong with William? What an attitude he has. But you know what? I, I will tell you, here's, here's where I see the social media model failing, and if you don't mind me explaining it. Do you, do you mind? No, please. No, please. No, please. All right. So, so you have, let's say you have 1,500, and I'm using the air quotes. Let's say you have 1,500 friends on social media. So, Okay. What are you going to do? Are you going to scream in their face every week that you have, you have things to sell? <laughs> I know Jarvis tells me to try to keep it PG-13. Are you going to keep posting what you do every week, every other week, and put it in the face of people who already know, who see your crap, every single week, every other week, whatever frequency you have. That's the failure of the social media um, platform. You know, people go, oh, no, 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 my reach is more than that because people share my stuff. Nah, not really, not unless you've got, I think they say somewhat above 9,000 people liking you, do you get that kind of um, that, that kind of rebound with other people posting your stuff. So it, it's kind of tough when you only have social media as, an, as a marketing platform because of its limited reach and, and its limited utility. Um, for me, I, I, I don't really do much in terms of, of marketing on social media because I don't want to piss anybody off. I don't want people going, oh, man, you know, I am so tired of hearing about William and his stuff. So it's I I I think it's hard to balance that. Do you see that as a problem, or or have you been able to reach a good mix of of what you do and and when you do it in in a way that's not offensive and you found effective? 
Well, one thing for me, I try to utilize my Facebook page as a source to share what I'm doing with my content. Now, I may hit some political things every now and then um, because I'm not sure. fearful about where I, I stand on certain issues. But for the most part, right. I try to post things that relate to what I'm doing as far as my brand, which is Purge, Dynamo is on, Blackout, whatever I'm working on. Now, for me, I found that there is a lesson to be learned. And this was a lesson I learned the hard way when I first delved into utilizing social media for marketing purposes. Your likes do not always, and most times they will not, translate to dollars. <laughs> okay? Oh, no, um, yeah, that's for darn okay, sure. Yeah, that's know, true. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so you can get 400 likes. That doesn't mean the 400 people are going to buy your product. Okay? So, <laughs> you know, as, as my father used to say back in the good old days, don't let the smooth taste fool you. Um, you know, you have to be quite aware of that. So that, that, that being said, um, the reach has been well for me on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Oh, good, good. Um, now, granted, I realize there's overlap. In other words, I may have 12 people or maybe 20 people who are friends on Facebook who are also on Instagram. But what I've learned from my own experience is that I can share an image of Purge two weeks ago, share it again today, and a new set of people would say, man, I haven't seen this. Oh, you got to be kidding me. Oh, well, that's good. You see? That's good, but so, also you have an advantage because it's, it's so visual, and people do respond well to things that are, that are that visual, especially if they're exciting. So I think you do have an advantage there, yes. So that let me know, okay, I'm not oversaturating people. It doesn't mean that I'm going to post things every single day. Like, for example, and I'm sure we'll get into it, but, you know, I have a Kickstarter uh, that's running as we speak. So I'm careful about not posting every single day. Now, for me, um, I have a document here that gives me um, – it's called HubSpot, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, if anyone wants to look that up. But on HubSpot, it's a website – it gives you the best time to post on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and other social media outlets. So I use it as nice. my guide to post on certain days at certain times when there will be more traffic and there's a better chance that people are going to see the content that I would like them to see. Um, and that was something that was provided by another colleague of mine by the name of Vince White. Uh, he's quite proficient uh, with social media marketing. I learned a lot from him. So. Um, that has helped me to kind of formulate my strategy. However, after saying all of that, I have to go back to the old school side of Roosevelt and get out there and meet people. So I try to do conventions as much as I can. Uh, I try to visit comic book stores as much as I can. And unfortunately, the only thing that slowed me up this year, as a side note, my fiance passed away in February. So I've been oh, really so sorry. Well, I appreciate that. Um, but life hits us sometimes with a sledgehammer, and it really knocked me off the saddle. So I'm basically getting back into the swing of things, uh, utilizing you know the Kickstarter to kind of get things back moving again on my train track of life is what I like to call it, so that I can get back to what I really enjoy doing, um, producing content to elevate black people, and to use that to hopefully – build and continue to build my brand the way I know 
it can be built and should be built. So I'm saying all of that to say, you know, all of that works in tandem in order to continue to make my brand visible so that it doesn't fall to, uh, into a place where people forget. Um, because, unfortunately, we have short memories. Well, and, and also, you know, fads and trends, you know, pass so quickly that, um, you know, something that, that might have been popular even like, you know, at the beginning of the year can, can be forgotten by, you know, here we are in October, you know. So, so you know, there, there is the impetus and the need for trying to, I mean, you, you want to keep people um, aware of, of, you know, your, your brand, your, your product, whatever, but you don't want to oversaturate, you know. And, and so, yeah, yeah, I think it sounds to me like you're doing very well to walk that line. And, and you know, when you have a tragedy like you suffered, you know, earlier this year, social media is also a place where you can check in and let people know you're still around without having to, to devote a lot of time and energy into managing a marketing campaign. And for that, you know, social media is great just to let people know, you know, yeah, you know, I'm still around, still doing stuff, uh, you know, what have you. Um, I, I'm very much like you, though. I am much, much more likely, no, I, I, I admit, I admit uh, that I am capitalizing on the cult of personality in order to get people interested in the kinds of things I produce, in the books that I write, in the short stories I write. Um, I don't, I, I, I remember when I first, when I let my first book out, um, I, had, uh, I had a station wagon and I always had, you know, a bunch of books in the back of the car. And whatever, wherever I went, if somebody said they were interested or that they wanted one, I always had one. But that's, that's not a very cost-effective way of marketing. You know, first of all, I can only be in one place at one time. Second of all, you know, you never know um, if, uh, you, you never know if, if you're going to, you know, meet, you know, overstep, you know, people's interest or, or you know, I don't want to sound like I'm pimping my books all the time to people who might have just a peripheral interest or they're being polite. You know, I don't want to be that guy either. But if I go to a convention and I'm moderating okay. panels or I, I'm talking about my books or, or, you know, that sort of thing is actually going on, you know, there, it's, it's an appropriate venue, then it, it like you said, you get much more coverage. You get to press more flesh. You get to talk to people who obviously share that interest in a way that's not off-putting. So I, I like that concept, and I like that idea for me, and it seems like it must be working for you. Otherwise, you'd quit doing it, right? Well, exactly, exactly. You know, I'm, I, I love what I do. Um, even after five kids, two in college, one going into college, um, I've never <laughs> abandoned my core need to provide, again, as I said before, and I will continue to say, content uh, that truly represents black people in, in their greatness. Um, Superman is fantastic, but there's no reason that we shouldn't have a black superhero that represents the goodness uh, that he represents, uh, the, the ability to have um, – morality, 
that you stand by, that you would not allow anyone to force you to waver. Um, you have a code of, of, of ethics that you stand by, and that no matter what happens or what transpires throughout your life as a hero, no matter what um, things that you encounter, hardships that shape you one way or the other, at the end of the day, you're still going to be that hero. And that's something that I always felt so passionate about bringing into comics, uh, especially uh, with the black lead. So, yeah, I'm, I'm on this journey, um, and I will continue to be on this journey until my last breath. Very, very cool. Now, you know, you've got, you've got these other accolades, you know, obviously the publisher and the comic creator, those are, and the author, they are um, all related. Uh, you're also a director. Now, is this of um, visual content, motion pictures? Well, tell us a little bit about that part of, of what you do. Well, the directing part of me is, is quite small. I'm not going to um, misrepresent myself, but I have written a few um, um, Purge uh, short television episodes that I directed and wrote, you know, so I, I, okay. I've done that. Um, back in my PR days working with a public relations company, I assisted in directing commercials and things like that. I had my own um, ad agency back in the early late 80s, early 90s as well. Uh, I did, did mm -hmm. some directing there. Um, so I've had my, uh, I guess you could say I've worn many hats over the years. Um, my goal is, is to direct uh, a Purge animated cartoon, uh, which actually I'm working on that as we speak as far as developing a cartoon series featuring Purge and other Hindu creators who have black characters that they would like to see animated. Um, so I'll be working within that um, confines to direct and write uh, animated episodes. It's called Astounding Adventures. Uh, we have a website, uh, astoundingadventures.net. Uh, I think it's already in the chat room. So my directing is, is quite small, but it's growing. Um, and I'm looking forward to doing more of that in years to come. I see. Okay. Um, and then, uh, do you, again, I, I mentioned this uh, last week and every now and then, but it sounds to me like what you're going to do with your content is you're going to create kind of like a transmedia empire where, where your content is, it crosses, uh, you know, it goes across many different mediums. Um, would that be fair to say? That would be fair to say, and, and quite correct. Um, comic books was always the foundation, but I always had dreams and aspirations to produce animation for children featuring um, the characters I've created and to work in collaboration with other uh, indie black creators who have wonderful black superheroes. Uh, for instance, I would always give a plug to Jay Kelly and the brother, wonderful character, immortal um, hero who traveled throughout time, righting the wrongs, uh, protect, protecting black people across the globe. Um, and then I also have another wonderful colleague, um, Ade Haru. He has Shadow Boxer. Um, and of course, you know, I already mentioned Mishindo Kumba um, and his character, um, Anna Kalapo. So we have a, a, a laundry list of wonderful black creators who I'm hoping to work with or who I am working with to produce 
um, content such as animation um, that hopefully will be able to flourish and grow uh, into, you know, movies, uh, live action. So that's always been the goal from day one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and are you basically working solo? You know, is, is your... You know, I know that you you collaborate a little bit with other people. You've mentioned other names, but is the is the the your basic thrust rather solo right now? It is. It is. It is. Um, I just launched uh, the Amari Entertainment website. Uh, it just okay. went up. There are about over. Well, I've been working on it for five years, but the last time an Amari Entertainment site was actually on the web was back in 1996, 97. So I'm getting back to really working on producing and growing my brand characters while doing collaboration, as I spoke of. But to answer your question, yes, it's primarily a, a solo effort. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, okay, so uh, let's see. You said you started early 90s. Uh, yes, um, as far as doing comic books, I actually would yes. say I started in uh, 1986 when I actually started. Okay. 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 That, that, what I mean by that is I said to myself, I want to publish comic books with black leads. So what do I need to do in order to make that happen? Um, so I actually went to business school or took a business course understanding economics, supply and demand, understanding how to publish. This is, again, back in, uh, I would say, 86. I was still in college at North Carolina A&T State University. That's my um, alma mater. Um, mm-hmm. And I actually went out into the city of Greensboro, Winston-Salem, Charlotte, actually hit the street. It was kind of interesting. I went around with a notepad a tape recorder with a microphone and ask people on the street, can you name me a black superhero? <laughs> no, I don't know. Okay. Okay. Can you name me a white superhero? Oh, sure. Superman, Spider-Man, Batman, Green Lantern, uh, The Flash, Wonder Woman, uh, Catwoman. It was like nonstop. And I said to myself, I've spent a week asking people, could they name a black superhero? And I only had maybe one or two people out of 40 to 50 people I spoke to who could name one black superhero. And then I took that to my business professor and I said, here's why this is needed. Help me build a business plan to create a company to fill this void. Okay. And that's what I did. And my first company was comics. I partnered with an artist. His name was Zach Upright. And we used the last name, last letters of our last name. My name being Pitt, his name being Upright, U-P Comics. And our slogan was, we have nowhere else to go but up. (laughs) And I created my first comic book, Black and White, uh, that was called The Power Knight. And wait, what year was that? That was 1989. Okay. All right. 
Um, and, and, I mean, obviously there was a need. Now, let's flash forward to today okay. where we have okay. the unprecedented um, financial success of, of um, Black Panther. And, yes. and, you know, what's, it, it, I guess it's fairly easy to say, you know, to, to tell what the read is. But let me ask you this. Were you surprised sure. at, at the financial success of this movie. Now, I will admit that there was so much anticipation for the year during the year before it it actually was released. But but given what you've been studying for so damn long, what what was your tell me a little bit about how you saw Black Panther playing out in the pantheon of of modern, you know, um, our, our modern entertainment industry. Well, I would say this and um, as you, I'm quite bold because I know that what I say is true. For years, we can go all the way back to black exportation days um, when, um, when Peebles, um, Mario Van Peebles, um, introduced Sweetback. Um, right. There's always been this lie that black doesn't sell. That has been the core lie that Hollywood has told for years. Or you have to be partnered with a white protagonist in order for people to accept it. That, that was also a lie. Yet, since black people, for the most part, don't have the Hollywood dollars to produce high-end um, Content. We, do, we have a better chance of doing it now with technology, but we never had that opportunity or the money to really produce high-end movies. So we were at the behest of <laughs> Jewish white um, uh, benefactors, and they have a tendency of watering it down or reducing uh, the amount of black people in it because they continue to perpetrate the lie that black doesn't sell. So I only say that to say, I know for a fact that Black Panther's success was inedible because black people are the foundation of so much creativity. So bringing us all together in the way that they did, I knew it was going to be a success, no doubt. Um, that doesn't mean that other uh, ethnic groups or other races don't have the ability to create great things, but black people have always had that creativity whether it's jazz, whether it's sports, you can see our greatness in anything that we do. So to think that we're not able to bring greatness to the big screen as a group, to me, was something that forced us to wait as long as we did, simply because we don't have the resources to do it ourselves or didn't have the resources to do it ourselves. So I wasn't surprised at all. And the fact that we they made it so much money tells me that we as black people have the ability to truly support one another with our dollars. I think um, also that I think the other the the B side to to what you're talking about is the fact that um, you know two separate studies that were commissioned by people in Hollywood um, in the last five years showed conclusively that movie um, movies that had uh, diverse casts 
made more money, okay? And and having said that, you know, okay, so somebody says, well, isn't that isn't that kind of a cheap way of trying to get more people of color and not just black, you know, Asian, what have you, into into movies? And I say, look, it's not important really the you know what the what the motivation is is because you can't you can't control the motivation of somebody you know what they're thinking like you said well i'm sorry it it doesn't sound really good because um you know with all of those uh colored people in it it's going to be of limited appeal though that's the phrase that i kept hearing limited appeal but when you look at the fact, and I always bring this up, you look at the fact that Luke Cage broke Netflix. Well, that wasn't exactly. just twelve—that wasn't twelve million black folks downloading that. That was a whole lot of people worldwide downloading Luke Cage from Netflix when it when it uh, became available. Not to mention all the illegal copies. But but you know the fact of the matter is, I also think that in today's day and age, people see, if they see something that's different, sometimes just different alone can be more exciting. It, it can generate excitement because it's not the run of the mill. And I think that the, the, the litmus test for that was, uh, was something you brought up, um, Wonder Woman. You know, Wonder Woman made an incredible amount of money, uh, a w- woman lead, you know, yes, you had uh, what's his name, that Trevor guy, in the movie, right. but it but it was still uh, a, a a production about women, about the you know the women from the island and and Wonder Woman herself, um, and her antagonist was male. I don't want to talk about anything Freudian about that because uh, it's not necessary, but. But I, I think part of it is is that not only is diversity more interesting and it does sell, but it, it just simply is something that people haven't seen much of. So there's there's that visceral excitement of seeing something you've never seen before. And I think that helps too. What do you think? Well, I can, yeah, I can agree with that. Um, you know, I believe that everyone wants to see someone who looks like them. Um, however, coming from a black man's perspective and been around as long as I have, what I've noticed and understood is that media, whether it's television or movies or programming, it influence and sometimes dictates how we see one another. If you see a black man as always a pimp or always as a crack dealer, always um, you know, carrying a gun and holding someone up, well, unfortunately, that is what people take back with them after they leave the theater, and because they have no interaction with black people other than what they see in movies, they assume that what they see is uh, or equates to who a black person is. Yet, when you see a person like a Brad Pitt um, or um, a Harrison Ford, who's always portrayed as the hero of the story, who has upstanding values, well, then that's what you take from that. So what I find as a black individual, as a black man, um, there are not as many black heroes who have a moral value system that's upstanding. And that's really important for me. It should be important for all of us. 
In other words, as a creator, whether it's Purge or any other project that I work on, it's always important to me to assure mm-hmm. the character represents the best that black people as a group have to offer. Um, because otherwise, I can't trust Hollywood to do that. I just can't. And I'll give you a prime example of what I mean. Blade, Wesley Snipes, one of the best movies that saved Marvel, although you rarely hear that from them, but we do know that Marvel was really, I mean, Blade was what really put Marvel on the map as far as superheroes in, uh, uh, on the comic book screen. I mean, I'm sorry, on the movie screen. Uh, although people say, well, he's not really a hero like, uh, like uh, Iron Man. Yeah, yeah, miss me with that. He put Marvel on the map as far as cinematically taking a comic book hero and putting it on the movie screen, okay? And it did well. Black children that I came across were ecstatic to be Blade for Halloween. And he was the lead. He stood for something. And he was just literally badass. Okay? Now, fast forward. And this is me looking at movies with an analytical eye. So, so, so stay with me here. Move, moving forward, the next movie that came out about a black superhero, if you remember, was Hancock. And Hancock was, to me, a bitter disappointment. He was everything Blade wasn't. He was a drunk. He he uh, he had no morals. And he didn't really even want to be a hero until he felt that society, i.e., just being honest, white society allowed him or gave him the okay. In other words, he had to basically present himself acceptable by them in order to be a hero. That was that was well, the he had to have a, message. Yeah, he had to, he had to have a white mentor. Exactly. In 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 see? order to achieve greatness. Yes. That's my point. And see, that's what people miss sometimes. And that's Hollywood for you. Because when you look at it and to be honest with yourself, it, movies are presented unfortunately in television to shape how we see one another. Um, and we have to be careful about that. And as a creator, I want to make sure that I combat that at every turn um, so that anything that I create with black leads, again, make sure that it presents them in the best light possible. Now, this doesn't mean that you never have black characters who are bad guys. But when it comes down to the quest of what a hero should be, he should have values that he stands by, whether it's Purge, whether it's the brother, or whoever I work with or create, it needs to have that in order for me to feel fulfilled in doing what I feel I'm here to do as a creator. I think, I think that, I mean, obviously that is great. That is a great perspective. That's a great credo to live by. Um, there, I can't find anything to argue about that, especially if you're trying to change a paradigm that has existed as long as this country has been around. Um, so uh, if you have a question, just put it in the chat room, and then I'll bring it up when, it's, when, we, when, when we can do that. Um, so you know, the other thing that I wanted to mention was, um, that I keep forgetting, is that I think one of the reasons why, uh, what was it, um, Black Panther resonated with so many people, black and white and, and other, is the fact that 
the, the, the notion of nobility that it carried through, you know, even, even Killmonger, you know, the, the heavy for the movie, you know, the so-called antagonist, he still had a, a, a level of nobility that, that I think people viscerally responded to. And that's another thing that you have not seen. You know, this goes back to what you said about Hancock. Um, if, if you're going to create a black superhero, why can't that superhero have that level of nobility that, that supposedly these white superheroes have? And I'll tell you, let me, it, it, to that vein, I was very disappointed in that first um, Superman movie where he killed... What was the guy's name? Zod? Was Zod the, the heavy? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and my whole life, you know, I, I grew up just like you. I saw that same guy, that same, you know, George Reeves, was it George? Standing there with his hands on his hip, cake flapping, standing for truth, justice, and the American way. And one of the things that, that Superman never did was he never killed anybody. And then he does in that movie, and, and I had to question, I was, I was curious why they allowed that to happen. Was it to show the humanity of Superman and that he was not above, you know, stooping to, to a level of murder or what? Um, so I, I'm like you. I, I kind of look at these things from a cultural perspective, being a writer, and, and I do question whenever I see something, because whatever you see on television, whatever you see on screen at a movie theater, all of every single nuance is deliberate. Nothing is left to chance. There are no accidents in movie making. Okay? So everything that you see on the screen is there for a reason. And so if they depict certain people a certain way, that's deliberate. And that's what I want to look. I want to peek behind the curtain to see why certain things always happen. And I'm, I'm so glad that that's, that's the, the center point of your awareness in the creation of, of not only your characters, but I, I would imagine your storylines as well, correct? Oh, without, without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, you know, we have to understand that it is called, again, as I said, and forgive me for repeating, television programming. Okay, and what is programming? That's social engineering. <laughs> you know, it's, you know yes. and sometimes we, we kind of gloss over these titles and sometimes it's right in our faces, you know. Um, if I'm watching a movie that depicts every Muslim as a terrorist, well, if I don't know any better, if I don't research, if I don't know history, which most of us don't, I'm going to take that for truth whether I know it's a fantasy, whether I know it's a movie or not. So, and it gets into our heads, it gets into our psyche, and we act on it regardless of what we um, believe or not. Um, it does affect how we treat and act um, within, the, uh, within the company of others. So I just want to do my part to make sure that whatever I create um, has a foundation of truth to it or it has a foundation of revealing what I know is untrue, and to hopefully bring uh, what is real uh, to light um, using my comic books or whatever other content that I create. Uh, and I think that's important. I think if any other creator doesn't do that, 
and me, I think they're doing themselves a disservice. Uh, but that's just my humble opinion. Well, you know, sometimes sometimes people don't see, don't have the same level of 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 artistic commitment that you have decided to 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 carry forward in your work. Um, you know, and and that I think that probably. Well, I, let's be honest. I don't think not everybody is going to be as socially aware as you, especially when they're starting out. Um, someone in the chat room has a question here. Um, okay. There's an artist in college, and they want to know what your advice is for you know to young to a young person trying to break into the business or or at at the the you know at I guess at the beginning of their career. Um, I would say. Um, to the other uh, person, I, and I actually see the questions. Um, I would say continue to work on your craft to improve your art to a level uh, that you know is at your best, but never stop learning. Seek out those who are doing it better, meaning maybe artists who are more seasoned, um, who can maybe give you advice on how to develop and grow your artistic talent, and maybe also introduce new ways that you can, um, what's what I'm thinking of here, um, represent yourself artistically. And I hope that comes across clear. Um, and if you are looking at being an entrepreneur, because I, I see the question, it looks like she was about to write entrepreneurship. Um, I would say, if I'm reading, understanding the question correctly, take that talent and use, again, as we spoke about earlier, social media. Find ways to post your work to sell. Use Instagram. Use any means to get the word out about what you do, and as you grow your art, you'll grow awareness. So you'll grow to a point perhaps you can do art shows, art galleries, where you can have your work displayed and sell it for what it's worth. Never, never undersell yourself because the time that you put into your art, you have to be paid for that because it took you years to get to that point. And even as a writer, I understand that when it comes to art. People assume that, man, he drew that in five minutes. Why should I pay him $1,000? Well, it took him 20 or 30 years maybe to do what you saw in that, what you perceive as a short amount of time. So that's what I would say um, to, the, um, to the young person who had the question. I think she had another question here I'm reading. How do you stay motivated? I would say for me, um, Staying motivated, how I stay motivated, basically is understanding that right now, if I go out in, into my complex where I live and ask a person, name me a black superhero, other than Black Panther, I don't think they're in a name anymore. So that keeps me motivated. My job is still, uh, there's, more work, there's more work to be done. My job will never be over as a content creator. That's pretty cool, um, and and that is that is a, a a good thing to to keep in mind that no matter how much we see in today's culture, in today's entertainment culture, there there's so much landscape that's available to be filled. You know, a lot of people a lot of people go, well, you know, I'm never going to have that level of success. Well, you don't know that. That's the other thing. I was talking to somebody today, a friend of mine, <laughs> a friend of mine who lives nearby here, and I know him, know him from online. I actually interviewed him on the show, and, okay. and one of the things that that we we were discussing was the fact that 
you know, not everything has been done and not everything has been done well. And so you mm-hmm. look at people who have had success. All right, I would love to have 50 Shades of Grey Lightning strike me. Okay, sure. that was a crappy-ass book. All right, it was mommy porn. And, and so, you know, it, 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 it hit at the right place at the right time. And, you know, every time I imagine that woman writing her book on her BlackBerry, and that's how she did most of the work with her two little thumbs on her BlackBerry, I shake my head like, you know, why can't I have that level of success because I write so much better than she does. But mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is that lightning can hit you at any time or, you know, unfortunately, it could very well just pass you by. But but you're, to what you said about keep working on your craft, that's huge. And a lot of people get, get discouraged because if they don't have a certain amount of success, <laughs> people, people can get discouraged. Now, I wrote my first book in 2001. I didn't get it published and ended up having to self-publish in 2009 because I couldn't find a, an agent who would take me on. Okay, and you can't get a, and here's the catch-22 in publishing, you can't get a publisher without an agent, and you can't get an agent without a publisher. Now, you say that to an agent, they will get mad as a, they will get very upset with you because they think that what you're doing is you're cracking on their industry. But, you know, that is the fact. You know, if an agent doesn't have to do heavy lifting to get your stuff out there, because it is a, it's a tough pull to, to try to get a brand new author um, attention. You know, we're talking thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars in order to do that, and that's what these top six publishers, you know, do. They have that muscle, and they, have, and they, are the gate, they were the gatekeepers. And, and, you know, by virtue of the fact that um, they've got advertising money they do get, you know, more attention for their people. But you can't, just because you don't get that attention, you can't stop. You know, if you believe in what you're doing, I mean, your advice is so on point. You know, you have to keep working at it. You have to keep trying. You have to devote yourself to being better and better. Um, And it can be very discouraging. I mean, uh, I, I can't complain. I'm getting very, very good attention for my work, and I've only been published for 10 years. But what, what if there's somebody out there who's been out there twice as long as me, and they're not getting that attention? It's tough. It's tough to keep, mo- keep being motivated. So that's a good question that was asked. Um, in, in your case, you know, you've got people who love what you do, um, but yet you still you're still striving to do better. Uh, would you consider yourself always a work in progress? Of course. Um, I tell my children that uh, I have five, <laughs> and I always share with them, even when I'm as they perceive me to be lecturing them, I always end with, you know, I'm still learning too, and. I also tell them, you don't know what you don't know. And one of my mentors told me that years ago, and I, it took me a few years to understand what he meant. But there's so much that we don't know, and we don't know what we don't know. So we have to be open to learning, um, even as a writer. 
to think that I'm at, a, at my pinnacle and that I'm at my best would be disingenuous um, as well as quite arrogant because then I close myself off from learning from others that can help improve my ability to tell the story that I really want to tell. So mm-hmm. uh, I, think, I think all of us should admit or should be comfortable with saying that we are work in progress. Uh, I, w- I will cease to be a work in progress when I die. Um, so until then, or, at least, or if my faculties totally leave me, I'm always going to be in a, in, a, in, a, in a growing, progressive way, at least I hope to be, um, as an individual, um, as an overall human being, and definitely as a writer and a content creator. I'm not exactly sure where where this this question in the chat room is going, but it, you know, so the same person said, would you ever consider incorporating dance in a storyline for your comic book? Oh, well, that's, that's that's an interesting question. Um, it really depends on the character that I'm writing about, and if that's part of his or her background. So it really depends. Uh, so I'm not going to say no, that would never happen. But if I, for instance, if I have a superhero or a villain who happens to be a ballerina, <laughs> okay, well, that's part of who that character is. That's their makeup um, or their personality makeup, uh, I should say. So at, at that particular point, sure, uh, that person would definitely have dance incorporated in the story. Uh, if the person was a dance instructor, who happens to be a protagonist or antagonist part of the story or a supporting character. Maybe she or he is dating uh, the main character. Well, then uh, dance would definitely be incorporated. Actually, I think it would be an interesting story uh, because dance in itself as an art form takes a lot of work, a lot of uh, dedication, um, and a lot of, as far as I'm concerned, strength of character. because I know a few people who have been part of dance troops, uh, it's not easy to be uh, accepted as part of a dance troop. A lot of auditions, a lot of hard work, uh, a lot of letdowns, um, and that could be the story, the backbone of a story of a wonderful hero. So, sure, it's always possible. Well, yeah, I, and, and I think that that the the process of character creation um, for people, especially at least for me, it, one of the things that's important to me is to, in, in that process, to create characters who do have kind of interesting nuances or, or interesting uh, aspect to them so that, you know, you create something that is not necessarily so unique but at least something that's three-dimensional. You know, very few people only do one thing in life. And so when you create a character that has multiple dimensions like that and something that's kind of unusual, I think you do yourself well because in the long haul, you're, you're probably creating a more, uh, a more remarkable, a more interesting and more memorable character. You know, because I, I, I have found that at least people who talk about what I've written, they always go, we really like, I really like your characters. I really like how you do your characters, you know. Um, and, and so I've found that people who have stuck with my series 
have fallen in love with the characters and want to know what's going to happen next. What are these people who I, I have invested a certain amount of time and energy into, what are they going to do, and how are they going to be reflected in different situations? Um, with, when you're creating your characters, what, what steps do you start with first? Do you, do you visualize them first, or do you think about their characteristics first, their personality? Um, talk a little bit about that, because that's always interesting to me. Well, for me, um, I'm not saying my, my approach is unique or different, but believe it or not, I start out with the name. Names have power. Um, a lot more power than we think. Um, and really determining what the name of the character is going to be. Uh, the heroic name as well as his alter ego's name. Because um, with that, I build a foundation for who the person is in and out of costume. So I kind of work from there for me. Uh, it's always been helpful. Uh, for example, um, I have a, uh, a comic book um, series that, I've, that I've been working on um, called Dynamo Azan. You know, Dynamo, power, Azan, you know, um, Egyptian principles and sensibilities um, mm -hmm. come together. That's dynamic, you know. And so when you, when you hear the word Dynamo Azan, it makes you feel sort of empowered, even though you may not know what it's about. At least that's what I've gotten from people who have shown interest in that particular book. Um, it strikes them as something different from anything they've ever heard before, but also resonates with them in a way to say, wow, this is something powerful. I want to know more about it. And then from there, I formulate, you know, the, the, the story, uh, the character development. Um, so for me, it always begins with the foundation of the name, because I believe that is what carries it beyond me. You know, people may not never remember Roosevelt Pitt, but they remember Purge. Okay. And, and then um, let, tell me a little bit about how you put together your storylines, because, you know, those, those don't necessarily – appear out of whole cloth, you know, there, there no. is a, a creative element of exactly how it is you're going to craft a story. For me, you know, my, my way is that I found is best for me is I always start with an ending. I try to figure out a great ending, and then I'll go ahead and write a story that, that brings me to that ending. How, what's, the, what's the process like for you? Well, for me, um, I prefer to, believe it or not, start in the middle. I know that sounds weird. Okay. Um, but if I'm thinking of a storyline, I like to think about, okay, where is the story going to go? What is going to be the climax of the story or the, the transitional aspect of the story that's going to take us from, from A to B to, to, to X, Y, Z? So... For instance, with Dynamo Azan, which I just mentioned, the middle of the story is where the pilot of the mech, who's a young boy, finds out that his mother, who he thought abandoned them, because that's what he took away from his father's story, although his father never said that she abandoned him, he just kind of 
took it upon himself, trying to piece together the puzzles of her disappearance, and just decided to accept that because that was easier for him to reconcile with. You know, in other words, if you can't blame yourself, you blame the other person. So, but he ends up learning in the middle of the story that his mother is actually a goddess from the Orishna, and, he, and also the Egyptian aspect uh, kind of um, meshes with that as well as far as why she had to leave. So she's a goddess. And that mm-hmm. happens in the middle of the story. And that shapes how the story ends. And it helps me to kind of formulate how it begins and then work on the ending, you see. Um, because that's a really important part of that story, is really finding out who he truly is, his lineage, which is something, unfortunately, most black people um, are not, uh, what's what I'm thinking of, um, uh, uh, they don't have, or they're not able to find out where they came from uh, because of, of, of slavery. So understanding who he is, how he became to be, and how he's uh, attached or related to greatness, states <clears throat> how mm-hmm. he continues um, to develop toward the end of the story and how it helps him to be a better hero and a better pilot of the mech, which is called Dynamo Azan. Okay. Um, and, and then, okay, so your characters start with a name, which for you more often than not is uh, a descriptive aspect of the character, correct? Yes. And then your story, it almost sounds like you're, you're in, in the back of your mind, it's situational. You're putting together the situation that occurs mid-story, you know, where, where the action, the meat of the story is. And then you create outward from that. Would that be fair to say? I think that's a great way to put it. And, um, and it's basically creating the, middle, creating the middle and then determining how I want the beginning and the end to help to bring that middle. Uh, it's almost like building a sandwich, I guess is the best way I can put it. You know, you got two ends of the bread, but you really want something really nice in the center. <laughs> you know, uh, whether, it's, whether it's turkey with lettuce and mayo, you know, What's in the center of that? What's going to make people say, yum, yum, this is a wonderful story. Man, I'm glad I got to this middle part. I can't wait to see how it ends. And that's sort of how I build. Um, now, it's not always that way, but for the majority of my stories, that's kind of how I like to work. And it kind of makes it fun for me. Um, and uh, it's almost like me knowing the spoilers, sharing them with myself. <laughs> and then making sure that the beginning and the end mesh well together to make it cohesive when it's all said and done. Okay. And so of your past work, what, what's been your favorite, uh, your favorite uh, storyline to work on? Um, I would have to say the Purge storylines. Um, the Purge storylines okay. uh, still, <clears throat> you know, even with the new direction um, that, you know, we're working through now, we're only issue two. Um, mm-hmm. And because it has a historic aspect to it, um, which I borrowed from um, Tulsa, the Tulsa bombing, and and how a total community of black people that was prospering was bombed down and destroyed simply because of jealousy and hatred. 
Um, and But it clearly indicated and showed that, like the Black Panther, if you want to use that as a, uh, I guess, as a fair comparison, um, black people were able to come together and create a huge, uh, bustling, uh, financial, viable community. Um, yeah, our own Wall like, Street. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, black Wall Street. So uh, I took some of that aspect and used that in the Purge storyline, where Purge um, protects a city that is predominantly black, where it has the Tulsa mentality, where they have uh, the financial strength uh, to stand on their own, and it's the first futuristic city in the world, and it's predominantly mm-hmm. black. So in other words, the way that I like to share it or um, make people understand what Purge and the city that he resides in, <laughs> which is New Salem, is imagine Wakanda in America, but grown through years and years of hardship, learning from errors, coming together as, as, as black people, and producing a highly technological city based on the Tulsa Black Wall Street model. And understanding that that was built regardless or despite of the Jim Crows and the um, disparity that we see within America toward black people, um, despite redlining, despite um, the, 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 the housing issues, despite, despite um, all the other things that we had faced uh, as black people in this country to keep us in a impoverished state uh, where we mm-hmm. can get loans you know, regardless of our credit. Um, But throughout all of that, they were able to come together and build the first highly technological city. Uh, And that's what Purge represents. So that storyline and seeing that developed, uh, ongoing, uh, is definitely one of my most favorite. That's pretty cool. Um, Now, your stories, it sounds like that they encompass current times more or less you know you know within a certain amount of years but an alternative history is that a good description oh yes 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 it incorporates a lot of the political things that we are facing but not so much that it takes away from the superhero genre i mean i do understand as i said before that media and content is uh, for entertainment purposes to help us to kind of get away from the humdrum of life, which is fine. Um, and what I create does fulfill that as well. But also it enlightens us to what um, we sometimes are confused about when it comes to how black people are represented overall in media. And I want to make sure that I just do it differently. You know, I can entertain, but I also can educate. Uh, I can entertain, mm-hmm. but I also I, but I also can enlighten, um, and that's always been you know the most important aspect of what I do. Mm-hmm. And and when you're doing a story, you know, and you're you're creating characters, you're in, in, uh, integrating elements of character and plot that you think are going to really move the story forward. Do you find yourself doing a lot of research? I mean, I spent an extraordinary amount of time doing research, but my reason is not for enlightenment. Mine is out of abject fear of some 
you know, Tom Clancy techno weenie reading something I wrote and going, oh, man, this guy doesn't know, doesn't know jack about what he's talking about. How stupid was that? This would never happen. This is all wrong. So it's that. It's kind of the fear of that that motivates me to do all of the research I do. It sounds to me, for you, your research is more historically based and grounded in, well, like, like, like we said, you know, an alternative version of what we already have. Is that, is that, uh, does that sound right to you? Uh, it's partially correct. Um, I would say that I also have to employ what you just mentioned. Um, one of my good friends, again, I probably gave him a lot of plugs this evening, uh, but Machindo Kumba always challenges me not to be derivative. Uh, right. We are, because, because we are flooded with so much imagery. We don't realize that what we are creating is just like something that we saw, but we see so much, we absorb so much. So research has to be a large part of what I do, whether it's researching Egyptian mythology or African history, uh, the original gods, um, or if I'm going to create a new energy source. Actually, Michelle and I just had this conversation, and he you know, enlightened me. He said, well, if you're going to have solar energy used as a main source but not have it convert to electricity, how are you going to explain that? If you're going to use nuclear fission as your model, then you have to explain how that works so that it's believable. Well, guess what? I'm not a nuclear scientist, so I have to go do the research so that, as you said, some nerd doesn't come behind me and say, man, that's not correct. You can't, nuclear fission doesn't work that way. And before yeah. you know it, he's turned off and probably will never pick up another book. So I have to make sure that I know as much as I can, uh, research as much as I can, and when all that fails, I'm not afraid to go to someone else and say, hey, can you help me explain this better so that it's believable? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I can't allow my ego uh, to determine whether or not I – uh, am quite clear about this idea enough that people understand and see it as being believable, so that it makes sense. Okay, no, that that's uh, that that makes sense to me. Um, there, there's a certain amount of excitement for me when I do my research too, because one of the things that's important to me is is my own education. You know, uh, that I I want to. I want to learn something too, and and you know for two reasons. One, I, I have a thirst for knowledge. I really like learning stuff. I don't mind learning unless I have to sit in the classroom and do it, in which case I hate it. But I, <clears throat> if what if I go to one of these conventions and uh, for some reason somebody corners me and says, "Hey, about this thing that you have here, have you really thought that out? What?" Uh, you know, how is that practical or how does that work? You know, I, I do want to have a reasonable explanation that, you know, the last thing that I want is to force a reader to suspend disbelief. 
okay, if something is so out there or so wrong in a story that all of a sudden the reader comes out of the story and goes, man, that's bull. You know, that would never happen or this is ridiculous. I, I certainly don't want that to happen because, uh, again, like you said, they won't pick up anything else that you've written because they think, well, you know, this person doesn't care much about what they write or how they write. Otherwise, they wouldn't have put this crap in there. So um, I, I get that aspect of it. Uh, you know, let, let's talk a little bit about, let's, can we talk a little bit outside of Purge? Do you have other creative universes that you're going to be playing in, you know, in, in the future? Well, actually, I do. Um, I have a character, uh, again, <laughs> I uh, co-created with Machindo Kumba. Um, it's called Charles the Chef. Um, you can find Charles the Chef on my Amari Entertainment website as well. Um, and it's a character that we created back uh, about maybe almost 10 years ago to help children um, navigate through eating so they can make better food choices to hopefully offset childhood obesity. And Charles the Chef is an interesting character. Again, it was created for children, but he has a magical chef hat that helps him to make the best choices he can. It also teleports him to different countries to learn different recipes, to learn different ways to cook, to learn from different cultures, so that he can bring it back to his restaurant to prepare healthy meals and continue his mission to help children live healthy lives and to be healthy weight as well. Uh, because despite what the world may want us to think, being obese, any doctor would tell you it's not healthy. Um, so we want to be able to share with children how to become healthy, love who you are, but strive to live a healthy lifestyle. Eat better. Know the food that you're eating. Uh, understand that peas can help benefit your immune system by providing vitamin C, um, watermelon, you know, um, Fruits, different fruits can help build your potassium, like bananas, things of, things of that sort. So there are storylines mm -hmm. that, that we have written or I've written um, and uh, to that end. I've actually finished a graphic novel for Charles the Chef, which kind of highlights how he became the chef he is today, uh, the origin of his magic hat, which has African roots. So that's just one of the brand of properties that I'm, that I'm working on or have worked on and developed that's outside of Purge and outside of the normal superhero genre. Very cool. Um, and, and obviously you're gearing that toward um, a younger audience. That's correct. Yeah. Um, that's pretty interesting. I never would have thought of doing that myself. Um, and and so let's look a little bit further down the line. You know, where do you where do you expect to be, or what kind of projects do you think you're going to be tackling? Um, let's say five years down the road, because it does sound like you have a bunch of stuff in your holster just ready to pull the trigger on. Um, I do. Um, I really want to see myself um, writing uh, the Astounding Adventures animated series. Um, uh, in five years from now, or at least have that really moving forward, meaning it's on uh, maybe like um, uh, a Netflix type of platform 
or my own streaming platform, which, which is really what I would prefer, uh, where we're producing these many episodes featuring these superheroes for children. Um, I would like to also see uh, the Charles the Chef brand reemerge because it's been on the back burner uh, for a few years now. Um, just as a side note, if you ever have an opportunity to go on YouTube, if you put in Charles the Chef, you will see two of the animated episodes that I wrote and produced and directed um, online. Uh, and these particular episodes was more format, formatted sort of like PSAs. And they ran on um, public television for PBS for about two to three years. Wow. So, and, and say that again. Wait, what, what, do they, what do they search for on YouTube? Um, if you go on YouTube, search for Charles the Chef. Charles the Charles Chef, the okay. And you should pull up Very cool. two, of the, two of the animated episodes that um, were produced for PBS and public television. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, that's interesting. How did you get that gig? What was, you know, what, how, how was contact made for them to get to you to use your content like that? Well, once again, it was before the Internet was really hot, and social media is what it is today. Um, I called PBS stations. I sent letters. Um, I sent copies of the book or the comic book that we had produced. Um, I did a lot of work from my desk, a lot of phone calls, a lot of cold calls, as they used to say. Um, and then once I got a bite, they said, hey, look, can you send me a clip? Or could you send me... Um, you know, some image of the character. I would do that. Sure. But during, during that same time, I was also traveling to book shows or bookstores, back when Books A Million, Barnes & Nobles, um, Borders, uh, doing signings. Uh, I had numerous television interviews, Fox. Um, uh, I think uh, we also did the Good Morning Show that was local. Um, and then I would take that and use that as my little ammunition to send it to PBS Network. Say, hey, look, this is who I am. So I'm not this fly-by-night guy. We have a book. Mm-hmm. Now, we're working on, uh-huh. now we're working on an animated short to help children learn how to eat healthy. We would like it to run on your local television station at no charge because most of them are nonprofits. Well, of course, you know, they had no problem. Uh, then I also worked with uh, pediatrician office offices or clinics uh, when they would start to start. They started to actually show um, DVD cartoons in the office for the kids while they're waiting to be seen. Well, I was mm-hmm. written by a DVD, mm-hmm. would, and then they started to pay me for DVDs. You know, say, hey, yeah, we'll right. buy a DVD for you. Uh, how much? Five bucks. Well, I give them a DVD with the animation content on it. They put it in a loop, and they showed it to the kids. That continued to bridge, build my awareness. And also, in addition to that, I was working with numerous childhood obesity nonprofits that were really hot back in the early 90s, late 90s, uh, because everybody was pushing to help kids lose weight. So there was so much um, support uh, surrounding me uh, I was able to capitalize off of that as well and build an awareness, and that helped me to push it 
into different networks um, in different uh, areas of the country. <laughs> I think the, the great example of that is, you know, that, that method of pressing the flesh and getting, getting, the, you know, getting your face out there. A lot of people don't do that. You know, a lot of creatives just don't do that. They don't know the value of that. They don't know the value of getting off their ass and getting out of the house um, to go and actually physically meet people to try to sell whatever it is they're trying to sell. Um, and and there, it, it, I think that that's great that you, you've been able to relate that because it, it is an important aspect, you know, for people who are trying to get visibility. Sometimes, you know, Getting out from under your or out from in front of your keyboard is the best way for people to see you, and I don't think enough people know that. Enough people practice that. So I'm I'm really glad that that you had such a success doing that as an example. Um, if if you were going to advise someone starting out to to try to get ahead like you did, what else would you tell them would be important for them to do? I would say I would say know your audience. Determine who are the people that you're going to be targeting. I believe there's an audience for almost anything that can be produced. Unfortunately, that can, sometimes that's not a good thing because, like you said, a lot of crap out there that people buy. Um, so I would say know your audience well before you venture out. Who are you marketing to? What are their dislikes? What are their likes? If you can. Do a focus group. Sometimes it doesn't cost as much as you think. Sometimes people will gather just for a cup of coffee and let you know what they think about your product or your proof of concept. Then once you have an idea of their, once you have an idea of what they think, their feedback, then you can determine if you need to tweak your product or you may need to scrap it all together and start over. Um, I think that's the important place to start. That's what I did. By simply asking, mm -hmm. do, do you know a black superhero? Okay. Well, once I knew that, that most people didn't know a black superhero, that told me that there was a demand for what I'm bringing to the table um, or what I wanted to do. Um, but even then, I went to conventions as a, um, uh, as a fan since comic books was the medium that I wanted to produce or be involved in. I talked to people, mm -hmm. I talked to fans of all walks of life. I showed images of my comic book. Um, I got their input, good, bad, or indifferent. I took it. Um, and that's what I would say to anybody who's going to be really starting out and really wanted to enter uh, comic books, per se. Um, really know your audience. And also research market. Comic books, unfortunately, are not selling as well as they, as they did. You know, so maybe... It's not just comic books. Maybe it's toys, ancillary products that you can use your comic book as a springboard for so that you can really have longevity for your brand. You know, unfortunately, people are not reading <clears throat> comics as much as they did years and years ago. People say mm -hmm. the comic book industry is really dwindling fast. Well, if that's the case, Perhaps comic books in itself is not something that you should solely depend on. Use that as a springboard to take your brand or your character to other levels, which is what I'm doing, you know. Um, so I think that's important. And I think it's also important to have people around you who understand your vision. 
people who can support you and help you to develop your brand in the best way possible. Um, I think that's also a major importance. I've been blessed to have that uh, throughout my career, um, who, who are not afraid to tell me what I may not want to hear when it comes to my creativity. And I think that has to be important. If you've got people around you that just yes, yes, yes all the time, well, you're not going to grow from that. You need to have people who will be willing to tell you, no, Roosevelt, that character is, is a mesh of Thor and Wolverine. So maybe you call him <laughs> maybe, you, maybe you just call him Thorine or something, you know? And that's okay because there's so much out there that I know I can pull from and use my creative talents to bring something to the forefront that looks like nothing that you've seen. It's out there, but we have to be willing to be open to taking direction other than our ego in order to reach that particular plateau uh, in our creative process. Then I would say understand the business side. It is a business side, folks, and believe me. I don't really, I'll be honest with you, the business aspect of it, I really don't care for because I like writing. I like dreaming up wonderful stories and then seeing it drawn on the page, colored, lettered, <clears> the <throat> book printed. But I got the book, but no one knows it exists. <laughs> because I have yeah, that's always the challenge. That is always the challenge, isn't it? it um, is, if, you know? if you, if you, if you, um, if if everything went well and all of a sudden you've achieved that level of success, um, you know what what are some of the things that you would look to be doing to to broaden your appeal? I mean, not that not that there's anything wrong with your appeal at this point. I mean, wanting to have um, uh, 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 black children have healthier minds and bodies, nobody can argue with that. And there aren't that many people addressing that that venue. Um, do you see Do you see that as as a great place for you to focus, you know, and and stick with? Is that the lane you want to stick with, or do you see something else where you want to kind of, you know, move sideways, broaden your appeal? Um, what What are you thinking in terms of long term? Well, one of the things I'm doing um, to that effect, um, I attend numerous conventions with a panel called the Black Animation Renaissance. Okay. And that, that panel helped to educate people about cartoons with black leads throughout the years and how that impacts how we see each other um, and how we are growing to be, what's the one I'm thinking of here, um, how it help us to grow to be inspired, to be better people, through what we see in cartoons. Um, for example, we speak about the Harlem Globetrotters, Super Harlem Globetrotters back in the 70s, 80s. Uh, we talk about the cartoon Mr. T, you know. So this panel is a traveling panel throughout the country, different conventions. And I use that platform not only to educate, but also to inspire other creators to perhaps use what they have to create something great. So in other words, I believe that my role here on this planet not only is to create the content, but 
but to hopefully inspire other people to do the same. Um, call it being a mentor. Call it being a catalyst uh, of inspiration. Um, you know, you can define it any way you want, but in the end of the day, uh, to broaden my appeal, I want people to look back and say, not only did he accomplish great things, but he also helped other people to accomplish great things that they may have not done without him showing them the path or the ability to look inwardly to pull that creativity and utilize it in a way to produce content that not only they can be proud of, but they can inspire other people. In other words, I wanted to be something contagious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, that's great. Um, uh, I, I'm curious, do you spend any time in the direct mentorship, mentoring of uh, the young, you know, young, younger kids, you know, maybe preteens, teens, what have you? Um, to be honest with you, I have not set up any type of ongoing one-on-one mentorships um, with um, individuals on an ongoing basis. You know, during my uh-huh. Charles the Chef, during my Charles the Chef tenure, uh, we did do a lot of that. Uh, Machindo and I traveled around. Uh, of course, do, uh, participated in book signing, but we went to schools. Uh, we did workshops. Um, so I did do that years ago. I haven't done that um, as of recent. I hope to get back to that uh, because I do have a lot of children who come up and say, hey, I like to draw or I like to write. You know, what can I do uh, to reach that goal? So that's quite as kept. What I'm hoping to do and I'm not making any promises, but one of the things that I would love to do, and I'm kind of mapping it out on paper, is to um, create and launch a convention that really centers on mentoring children in the art process, those who are inspired artists, to have a convention that really caters to them. Um, And that we can have artists from all walks of life who are there to help direct children on the path to be an artist or to be a writer, to understand the importance of comic books or comic book type products. Um, or kids like my own, uh, I have 11 year old, a 13 and a 19 year old who love video games. Well, that's another venue where you can take a mm-hmm. comic book character and Make it or utilize it as part of a video game where they want to actually create video games. But it would be great to have a comic book convention that also helps them to see their potential to produce things such as that as well. So I would like to one day be able to create that type of platform or environment or convention, so to speak, that will help children uh, to be able to see the path in order to reach that goal if that is their so desire. Very cool, very cool. We got about uh, we got about ten minutes left here. Um, is there anything else about what you're doing that you want to convey to the audience? You know, uh, maybe a project or or a focus that you have at this point that we haven't talked about yet. Um, well, actually, we almost covered pretty much everything. Um, you know, I do know that um, this year, like I said, has been a tough year for me due to the loss. Um, sure. I hope that in 2020 uh, I'll have more convention appearances, so look out for more of those to be announced. Um, 
I also uh, hope to be able to um, announce more projects along the animation uh, route. Um, working with numerous or a few animation companies that I've been talking with uh, for producing uh, animated um, content outside of Purge. So um, I'm hoping that that will be something that will be at the forefront uh, next year. Um, but as far as any new outstanding projects, uh, none really that we haven't already discussed. Okay. Okay. And then, um, you know, it sounds like you probably have enough stuff kind of to keep you busy for about the next four or five years. Um, do you do you plan that far in the future, or, or do you just have a plan and you see how long it takes you to get to where you need to go? Do you have well, in, in other words, do you schedule? You know, do you have a schedule for yourself? I guess is probably the best way to put it. Well, I have an outline of what I want to, where I want to see myself in the projects that I'm working on in five years. Uh, I think okay. any person who looks at this as they should, which is is the business, when you create a business plan, you normally create it five years out to have an idea yep. exactly what it's going to take to get you there how much finances you're going to need, what support you're going to need uh, as far as marketing, uh, because there's, there's been so many years I had to wear every single hat, writer, publisher, market person, um, social media person. And a lot of those hats I still wear now. But what I think most creators uh, or content creators such as myself sometimes have to face is that I'm not a marketing person. I do it, but I don't do it as well as, my, as a person who knows how to do it. You know, so you have to step outside yourself and work with people who know that their that area of expertise or that area that you are not um, uh, quite well groomed at. So during that five year period, part of that journey is me meeting people who can help me market better, who can help me understand how to write or research better. Um, mm -hmm. And that is part of, part of that five-year process. So all of that is laid out. I have it on my computer. That is laid out so that I know how to measure my progress, my progression or my success. That's, um, and and that, that's important because a lot of people try to go it alone. And, and your point is well taken. If you're, let's say you're a writer, let's say you're a novelist like me, you know, you're not, if you're not in marketing full-time, if that's not your job, then there's a whole lot about it that you don't know. And, and another thing that you mentioned earlier is, unfortunately, we don't know what we don't know. You know, we're lucky if we run into some place and go, okay, I don't know a lot about this. But there are so many pitfalls in being an entrepreneur, and that's what a content creator is until they can find themselves, um, at least in my case, like it would be a publisher. You know, you're an mm -hmm. entrepreneur until somebody takes over all of those duties for you, you know, by fiat. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and so um, your point is well taken. You know, you're, you're going to have to move forward. And, yes, along the way there may be stumbles, but something you said earlier, you can't let those stumbles knock you down and not let you back up. Otherwise, what's the point? 
why would you even start anything in the first place, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I didn't say this, but I'm assuming it's um, understood that it's going to take patience. It's going to take a lot of understanding that you may scuff your knees along the way. Uh, you may bruise your elbows. You may lose friends. <laughs> but as my father always said, you have to keep your eye on the prize. Um, mm-hmm. and I try to maintain the best relationships I can with people who I work with. I believe having integrity is, is the utmost importance. So I share that with anyone who's uh, looking at becoming a comic book writer, publisher. Um, and I say this with all honesty. You know, be good to the people who support you um, and understand the importance and value that they bring. Because sometimes we don't do that in business. Um, and that's uh, unfortunate. Where we have artists who produce wonderful works that a publisher can benefit from for years to come, but they pay the artist a one time fee. But they can sell the book for years based on mm-hmm. the visual art that makes that book outstanding. Well, then, when you're working with an artist, well, you know, make sure you understand their value. Make sure you pay them what they're worth at the best of your ability. Um, and that goes a long way, you know, uh, when it comes to developing long-standing, uh, beneficial um, and supportive relationships. Relationships, yeah. And the same, and the same, and yeah. the same thing goes for a writer to a degree. You know, uh, writers have their part. Um, you know, so everybody has value. So I believe in having uh, developing and nurturing good working relationships. But at the end of the day, not many of us can do it by ourselves. No, that you're you're absolutely right. Um, you know, one wh- that was one of the reasons why I kept looking so hard for a for a um, an agent because there there is so much about the publishing industry that I did not know. I know more now, but I certainly wouldn't consider myself an expert. I can I can tell you uh, I'm an expert at disappointments because I've had a few, but but I didn't let them stop me either. You know I you can't and and that's the other thing about becoming a creator, a content creator of any kind, is you have to not only develop a thick skin because you know criticism is part and parcel of what you're going to run into, but you also have to be able to deal with rejection and you have to you know the important thing like you said is when you get knocked down, you get your ass back up and and try it again because otherwise there's no point in even starting it. You know, then it becomes a hobby that you can toss aside, not not something that you really, really are invested in that you think is going to take you maybe through the rest of your life. Um, exactly. We're we're running we're running out of time now. You know, first of all, I want to thank you for doing this because uh, you know when you told me you thought, well, how long is this going to be? Like twenty minutes, half hour? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if Jarvis deliberately didn't tell you how long it was going to be, or if you just didn't know. But I, I really want to thank you for being here because it, I think what I try to do is I try to keep the conversation going in a direction that allows people listening to know more about you, what 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 is important to you, and what drives you forward. So again, thank you for spending this time with us, uh, with me on a Friday night. 
um, I, I hope that it was it was worth the effort on your part. I mean, uh, let me ask you this. Did you enjoy yourself? I've enjoyed it uh, tremendously, and I appreciate you allowing me to share about what I do, who I am, and what I see as my purpose uh, on the planet. And uh, it was more enjoyable, and I, I, you have my uh, utmost gratitude. Oh, no, thank you for being here. Um, for those of you who are listening, either live or as podcasts, let's see. Uh, I was going to try to get Jarvis, but I forgot to tell him that I wanted him for a few minutes to talk about some of the the, the progress being made at, you know, the new things about uh, BlackScienceFictionSociety.com, um, especially the, the self-produced movie that we're doing, 3D animated movie, Earth Squadron, things like that. But uh, I don't know. He could be in bed. He could be downstairs eating wings. I have no idea where he is. Um, <laughs> As as for me, I uh, I just got uh, my uh, my publisher got in touch with me. I have a new trilogy that will be coming out all at one time. Three books. It's called the Archangel X trilogy. Three books. Oh, uh, what did I call them? Uh, Quarantine, Enmity, and uh, Enlightenment. That'll be my next. I like one word titles because I don't like typing a lot. Um, so those. Those will be out in the next few months, and I, I'm hoping to have a surprise, you know, to oh. announce soon, soon too. Uh, okay. I'm not sure what else. Do you have anything brand new that's coming up, um, Roosevelt? Well, well, um, just for you and those who happen to listen, um, I don't want to make any necessary promises, but I am working on uh, particularly work with the publisher. We're just at the beginning stages, so I can't make any promises. But I have a graphic novel uh, that I've been working on, Machino and I, actually, for over almost eight years or more. It's been sitting on the shelf. It's a 118-page graphic novel featuring Purge and another character called Mukasa titled Crimson Seed. And if things work out uh, with this publisher, perhaps we'll be seeing that in the, in the next year or two years. Uh, that would be and I'm great. Also hoping, and I'm also hoping to produce a graphic novel instead of a comic book three-part series uh, featuring Dynamo and Zahn, uh, the, the mech story that I uh, mentioned earlier as well. So keep those names in your Rolodex in your thoughts, uh, Dynamo and Zahn and Crimson Seed. I feel strongly that you'll see those quite soon. Very cool, very cool. Oh, and, and in case you were wondering, um, my new trilogy is actually a sequel to my first one, so it's all in the Dark Side universe, but the new trilogy picks up, I guess, about a decade after the events in the last novel of, the, of Dark Side. So I'm not sure what else may be going on. I'm not sure what progress we're making on Earth Squadron. I'm going to try to talk to Jarvis at least during the, the, the week so that I could report back on that if he can't be here next Friday. Um, I'm not, and, I, and uh, obviously it's a week out, but I don't know who next week's guest will be, but obviously it's going to be somebody pretty interesting because that's the only people we booked. Um, I guess, uh, again, thanks to you, Roosevelt, uh, Roosevelt, I'm so sorry, Roosevelt for being <laughs> here, and uh, yeah, we had that discussion before the show, but Roosevelt, thank you for being here, I really appreciate it, and on behalf of Jarvis and uh, all of the other people involved with BlackScienceFictionSociety.com, 
the associated Facebook pages, all of the other stuff that goes on in this uh, this network. I want to thank um, those people who listen to this live. Thank you for being here. Thank you for participating in the chat room. I also want to thank those of you who picked this, who will pick this up as a podcast. Again, we appreciate your support, and we uh, we're going to do our best to keep things interesting for you to keep you coming back. And I, uh, you know, I still don't have the ankle bracelet off, so I am most likely going to be here next Friday as well, you know, until I can get this thing off and go get me another job. So thank well, you very well, much, well, Roosevelt. Yes? Well, you're welcome. If I can interject one thing and then I'll be done, please, if you, if you don't remember or you wasn't um, at the beginning of the podcast, please check out my Kickstarter. It's Purge Blackout Double Impact. It's on Kickstarter. We are over 80% of our goal. We have about 17 days left. Check us out. Please support us. It's going to be a wonderful project, high quality, as only I give. So please take a look out for that. And lastly, um, visit my site, amaraentertainment.com. It just launched. Check us out there as well. And, again, thank you. All right, you heard the brother. Shake some nickels loose, okay? Shake some nickels loose and go give him a hand because, uh, because you know what? Supporting our community is more than just helping somebody get something done. What it does is it, 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 it increases our visibility, and in, especially in the case of Roosevelt, you know, since he is tailoring so much of his content to kids, um, we're broadening their horizons, and we're also creating new consumers and new content creators as we go along. So, oh, I see Jarvis in the chat room. So on, be on behalf of Jarvis and everybody, I want to say thank you very much. Hang on, Roosevelt, after I, I end the, the show in case anybody has any last-minute questions, okay? Sounds great. All right. So everybody out there, have a great weekend. And we will be back next week, week with a brand new guest and, and more fun and excitement. So everybody have a great weekend. Good night.